right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another week of Barstool Backstage. Two big interviews today. We have Bronson Arroyo, the former MLB pitcher, Dave and Dante, or, I'm sorry, Dave and Dante sat down with Bronson Arroyo this week. First of all, I was shocked that we got Bronson Arroyo. It's like a flash from my childhood. Dante, how was Bronson? Dude, he was awesome. And surprisingly, his album, I think you guys all heard it. Dave sent it on the thread. Yeah. Is very, list, not only listenable, but pretty good. And it's kind of scary how much he sounds like Eddie Vedder. Oh, I didn't put he, that together. Oh, dude, he... He grew up like idolizing the guy. He's he's like around like me and Kenny's age, and um, he grew up huge grunge fan. And then through, you'll see in the interview, but through some baseball connections, he ended up bridging that gap into kind of that alt rock world. And he got to play with a lot of these guys he grew up idolizing and learning from them. And it's weird. There, his band sounds. Like as '90s grunge as it gets. Is it, I'll take it. Is it better or worse than the Rock's rap song that he put out? Nothing's better than the Rock's rap song. That's that... true. That's also true. It's about drive. Kenny, it's about which, power. Kenny, which one? I've never heard the that, one that right? just came out like last year. Johnny, you've never heard the Rock's. Oh rap? my god! I did. I did last year. I blogged it, but he has a few. Everyone thought that was his first one, but he did a song with Wyclef way back in the day that oh, people no. forgot. No, People all I want not existed. Probably and, for the better, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, probably for the best, dude. Uh, we also have an interview Dante did like almost two years ago that we finally got up on the YouTube. I'm gonna put it at the end of this episode with Griffin, unbelievable EDM producer, performer, guitarist, musician, uh, former blackout tour member, as Dante pointed out in the interview, which they'll get into. That's great. That's already up on our YouTube. You guys go check that out. Um, but there's a lot to get into this week. Me and Dante were in New York City uh, doing a bunch of stuff that we can't really talk about yet that went swimmingly well. And it, I will say it like kind of like recharged my battery on everything that we're doing and more than anything on the fucking songwriting process because a lot of things that we shot have to do with that. I'm in a positive mood this week, guys, which... No should way. shock you. Yeah, no, but I'm saying just on music in general. I don't have anything to rip apart. I don't have anybody to shit on. I have only good things to talk about, which might make for a boring episode. But I want everybody's opinion on something. First thing that happened, the Riot Fest lineup dropped, which Dude. is fucking outstanding. Dude, I swear to God, I'm going to get, I'm trying to get somebody from behind the scenes at Riot Fest to come on and do an interview. I need to hear the story and the journey. Of, I played it fucking 2013 so fuck 10 years ago and it was still pretty big i mean it was still like no effects headlining and stuff like that but big enough but how the fuck they got the and then it started like a couple years ago getting nine inch nails and this this and that and you're like how did riot fest grow to become one of the best festivals in the country i gotta know it's chicago september 15th 16th and 17th at douglas park foo fighters turnstile postal service and death cat for cutie queens of the stone age the Cure, The Mars Volta, which I didn't know they still perform together, Tegan and Sarah, Gaslight Anthem, Death Grips, The Used, Say Anything. Dude, this is just... I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Keep... Say who I'm waiting for you to say. I don't know. I'm going okay. through here. Corey fucking Feldman. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. Kenny. 
What? Are you getting him on our show or not? I keep saying that. I don't fucking know Corey Feldman. All I know, you know is everybody. That, in my opinion, in my personal non-sponsored opinion, that motherfucker ripped off hard a fitness song. Hard, dude. Hard. Good. Let's uh, have, have you on. got let's it? Let's, let's it listen out. to them back to back and uh let's try so it was a live video that I saw and I sent it to Max immediately. Or somebody sent it to me being like, dude, that's that's a this fitness song. I sent it to Max. It's a live video, so I haven't found his song yet, but when I do, it's crazy. It's like vocal note for note melody, like well, whole verse. So he has well, terrible Max, taste in music. Well, Max is Max is so level headed, I'm sure he handled that very well. <laughs> Just um, back, LOL. That's it. That's listen, all. listen, listen. If you don't get Feldman on our show, I don't know what you speak. Dante's walking, anymore. dude. Dante's <laughs> out. And rationale is that Corey Feldman didn't come on and Kenny didn't get him. Dude. dude, can I ask an unrelated question? That video you posted for the interview, uh, they were the it was like the concert that you were talking about for the interview you did this week. That looked so much like Girls Gone Wild ads from the <laughs> 90s. I was having like flashbacks to watching. Oh, late what the night blackout TV. tour shit? Yeah, like that footage just looked like I was like waiting for whatever that dude's name was to pop up, you know? It was bad. It was fucking bad news, man. We were, I was in New York earlier this week and with one of the guys, he does KFC radio. Um, my buddy John Feidelberg. And we were, he was on that tour with me for four years and we were just like, man we were we were recording and i forget if it was him or me but we were like can you imagine trying to do that today how fast it would not only get canceled but how fast somebody would get hurt and sue the fuck out of barstool like we got away with so much shit at a time where it was like internet was there but it wasn't like it is now where every single thing is online like immediately like i'm i'm shocked that this harry and uh megan fucking car chase thing what is that about well wait i also heard that it wasn't real yeah i heard it's fake i heard they like over i saw people tweeting like i don't i have known nothing about this but they were tweeting like you literally can't have a two-hour chase in new york you can't no absolutely i I don't know like i mean wouldn't also wouldn't surprise me to see a fucking shithead paparazzi like chasing them either you know but yeah i'm like the fact that that's not on the internet is like shocking to me now because we just have everything on demand at our fingertips but yeah back then we used to we used to do crazy shit, Watch man. Barstool become like, like a Joe Rogan media meeting. Like people go there for their news instead of like normal news. Oh my god! If people were coming here for their fucking news, that would just be incredible. <laughs> Yo, what's up? Today's Thursday. I got your fucking news for you. <laughs> Dude, All right, what dickheads, can, what listen. Can be here. worse than existing. Like, nothing's worse than existing news. Like it would all right. be the same. Right. right. There are there are a lot of people that are in the industry though that listen to this. I know. Uh, I met I met another one last night. Um from Majestic, I want to say, which I never heard of, but they actually have some decent artists and they were like, yeah, well, like our whole office like listens to your guys show, which is scary. Crazy. Uh 
kind of like Colin Colin do one of your manifesting things I want to win a Pulitzer Prize for uh, journalism <laughs> on Barstool backstage can we do say that? less dude we need to do some deep dive investigative journalism into Jared Leto's sex call put it, That's up, all on your, I want. Put it up on your vision board Colin <laughs> I don't dude. believe in that shit I just talk a lot dude, That's you know what do you know what killed me about Leto and I didn't even put it on our thread because you guys would have just ignored it because you're all because you're all married happily uh-huh. <laughs> this one of the hottest fucking women alive this girl she was in sports illustrated swimsuit issue a few years ago Haley martha bailey. stewart Haley <laughs> bailey redheaded just stunner uh i ran into her at the skrillex Madison Square Garden show. Yeah, yeah. Saw her, saw her in real life, and she's even better looking in real life. She posted a video last week when Leto dropped that video that we were talking about on her Instagram of her coming out in a cat costume, like mascot costume, and she takes off the hat and she's walking down the hall and she bumps into Leto also wearing the same costume from that video. Oh, no. They look at each other, and she's like, I can't believe my BFF stole my outfit. And I was just like, God damn this. So Jared Leto stole your dream girl? Dude, I don't don't know, but I'm just like, this guy, this guy has the life. You can hate on him all you want, but he. Oh yeah, I think I hate the man. He has the life, you know what I mean? Like, mm. a big he's still got to wake up every day and be Jared Leto. Like, you know what I mean? Like, not in, about that. Dude, in the they're head, still though. like sleeping with him, going, he's like a fucking eleven out of ten good looking guy, and then being like, yeah, I hope he doesn't play me one of his new songs. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> Dude, I don't hate. I don't hate his music. Yo. Oh, God. Somebody, <laughs> yo, right away, when I posted that video. 30 seconds to Mars. You're the fucking worst. When I fucking posted that video last week of us talking shit, mostly me talking shit about Jared Leto, somebody commented right away and was like, four ugly motherfuckers talking shit on Jared Leto. You guys are nothing like Jared Leto. And I was like, all right, dude, listen here. Listen here, buddy. If Jared Leto had three dicks, would you suck them all, buddy? <laughs> That's what I was going to say. You know what I mean? No. Remove it. Yeah, I told I told this story before. I played Bamboozle Fest one year with Sammy Adams, and we were on right. The fucking guy that threw that festival was obsessed with Sammy, so we had an unbelievable time slot. We were like second to last before Thirty Seconds to Mars closed out. It's the best so place I to was, be. I was still up on stage, like hanging out side stage, watching. I forget who was in between us, but. 30 Seconds to Mars, my first time seeing him live, I was side stage, and I was honestly like, I want to fucking hate these guys because of all the reasons you just rattled off, but I was like, they're pretty fucking good, and they sounded good live. First uh, time no, no, I heard, no. like, Kings You know why they queens. sound good live? I love though. Kings and Queens. You know why they sound good live, though? Because they're playing to a fucking CD, dude. Like, <laughs> no, I, dude, I, it, I, all these things Wait. can be true. He, wait, like, technically wait, he's a playing, good singer. Recorded? No, their their track count is insane. So you got Shannon Leto, his brother, the drummer, Meatheads, cut off shirt, who's known by everybody in the industry to be one of the gnarliest, meanest people on the planet. Dude, I saw that guy. I did not ever think they were related. Yeah, well, yeah, they're yeah, fucking yeah. brothers. He's known. Yeah, he's their brothers, and he's known for being a huge fucking asshole, which is like 
not even justifiable. It's undeserved, you know, pretentiousness. What uh, is it? Just like, do you, do and you know then, who like, Jared is? holds the guitar. He doesn't even play it. He just spins around in 360s while balloons fall from the fucking sky. <laughs> right? So it's like, it's just, it's a fucking joke. But, what? Dude, Dante, what? all these things can be true. He can be talented. They could actually play their instruments well. I mean, I don't know. It sounds like it's all good. They put on a fucking hell of a show from like a pyrotechnic, like production standpoint. And it can also be really unlistenable. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like everything's technically right about it. If, if, if AI was observing it, it'd be like, this should be a successful band. And it shouldn't. It shouldn't. <laughs> it's, listen, though, they have good weightlifting music. Kings and Queens is a great weightlifting song. It's a fucking pump up song. Oh, I fuck with that. Just a great song. They did a song a few years ago. I can't think of the name of it. It was with Afrojack. It was like an EDM. I don't want to listen to that. Dude, It. I know what you're thinking. I know you're like, that has to be the worst thing I've ever heard. It was surprisingly very, it wasn't like too aggressive or too hard EDM. It was almost like a, like an epic almost. Just great fucking song. I'm going to look it up right now. I saw an article yesterday speaking of EDM. Fuck, I wish I remember who it was, but some big EDM DJ is has decided to put out the first ever emotional EDM music calling emotional dance music. Here comes a new genre, baby. Who is it, Kenny? I, I gotta, I'm going to look it up. Emotional? Right isn't all dance music kind of emotional? The also, song I mean, that's like that's just kind of its origins. You listen to them at early like '80s new wave stuff, where it started to like bend over into the beginnings of techno and that. Like it's that's pretty fucking emo. That it's a little you know? it's a little pretentious if you ask me. I don't um, know, man. I think one of my knocks on EDM music is just how like hollow it all is. Like it's just lyrics that like rhyme with, yeah. good, with good vocalists. There's a lot of the word tonight. They use it tonight more than fucking anybody. There's the word jewelry and there's the word mattress. You put those in a fucking EDM song, you're good. Here is something interesting because I've just gotten into EDM. One thing that I kind of think it is, is kind of a choose your own adventure when it comes to the emotional side because it doesn't really have much substance to it, but the vibe of what you're doing can kind of like charge the emotion behind the listener. Did like you, if I'm listening to house music, I'm fucking happy automatically, dude. Do you guys know that Johnny Congos is really big into dance, like electronic music? We talked about this. He likes house music. It's crazy. It blew my I think I said it before on the podcast. We're like, dude, I make electronic music, man. Playing, what the fuck are we doing? Johnny, what the fuck are we doing? Where where is this been? Tonight Come and get it tonight. Come and get it tonight. I'm telling you, when you live on a bus with a Texas. Is this the boot song? No, it was a new one Danny and I are working on called I Mess Holy with fuck. Texas. Play a bit of the boot song or no? Yeah, we can play it. It's all. I will get copyright stricken. No, no, we don't. No, I'm fucking around. You know, I'm it's fucking his around. music. I know, I know. It's a fucking. Yo, deal. he's got this new country dance music thing, and the first song is incredible, dude. Bring it up, Johnny. The the, uh, the artwork too is amazing. Did you know that the Congos make their own music, produce it, mix it, shoot their own music videos, edit it, logo? No, I feel like this is a stranger on our podcast. <laughs> it's crazy. So How like, do I not know any of this? When you oh, dude, here I, I don't want to like. Let's get back to our conversation. But I wanted to just play this one thing to you. Here, you see, this is our our alter ego, Dirty Texans. <laughs> um, I 
want someone to do this for us because like we've got no reach with this brand new account this is our new track and i'm just going and finding like ridiculous videos of people dancing in cowboy boots because our first track's called cowboy boots <laughs> get your fucking cowboy boots on get your fucking cowboy boots on get your fucking cowboy boots on We're going to the club club yo that's fucking awesome. Who's whose uh, vocal is that? Uh, that's my brother Danny, but like it's pitched down and fucked with. Get your fucking cowboy boots on. These guys like when when they're not making Congo's music and they're fucking around with like heavy electronic shit. It's so dope. It's so it's so dope. funny to me how much time and effort I put into every word and then that comes out and I'm like, this is so much better than anything it's I did. So much better. You're overthinking. But, I tell everybody that you're over fucking thinking. But that's well, the lesson that we learned doing the whole Chevy Mustang thing is like, because we're the same way, Colin. Like when I'm writing my own music, I'll spend literally five years. Like, should it be and or uh, uh like yeah. I'm, like one syllable change or one uh, article? This Danny and I just like fuck it. That works. Just say yeah, something so, stupid. So I, I interviewed Breland last night, and this kid is a fucking prodigy. Um, he grew up in a gospel house. Both his, both his mom and dad were gospel singers who worked a nine-to-five, and then after they left their job, they would go around to, like, local businesses and sing gospel music. And sick. Breland, Breland would, like, tag along with them. They wanted to produce their own songs, so he learned Pro Tools when he was, like, 11 um, and started, like, producing, fucking around with, like, FL Studio and shit. But he's telling me at his... He went to school at Georgetown, so sharp kid. And while he was in school, he got up to the point where he's knocking out two to three songs a day and he's tried to make that like a daily thing for him god where, almighty yeah he he literally has hundreds and hundreds probably thousands of songs that he just like bangs out i was just like dude how do you do two in a month never mind two a day for years and years and years like that is incredible to me i think it's incredible when you think about having to live a normal like live a life like actually experience life and have the time and the wherewithal to be like i'm gonna set time aside to make two fucking songs a day it's fucking crazy and especially when you're not like a mumble rapper you know what i mean where they're just like spitting nonsense bars a, there's such a split between like taking two years to work on a song right until it's perfected Versus like what Johnny was just talking about, which is kind of my vibe now of capturing the magic and the excitement, right? When you're just like, fuck, that's dope. Put it in. Great. That's dope. Put it in. Something about that is really cool. Versus, and, and then with Homeboy making two songs a day, there's something about that too. Let's say you make 60 songs in a month. You pick the two best ones. Then you focus on those a little bit. Like the fat, the speed writing is something I've gotten into a lot in the last. I think it just depends like what you're going for. Do you know what I mean? Like you're not going to, like accidentally come upon an album like Graceland without right. putting fucking three years in of just nonstop working it. But at the same time, like you're saying, occasionally just some magic just comes out in, like there, like 30 minutes done masterpiece, you know, but I don't know the, the, we, the real great ones. I, like look at so, like songs in the key of life. That was like fucking yeah. two years or something. He's in the studio what? by himself. So Johnny, those Chevy Mustang videos you were sending the other night, I, 
I'm such an idiot. I was like, I can't tell if Johnny's like trolling us right now or if these are. If <laughs> yes, these it are worked. Re- it's why I didn't comment. I was so confused, especially by the K Fed thing. I was like, I feel like if this was real, I would I would know about it by now. Either. No, dude, it's so fucking undiscovered. What Kenny, me, Max on that bus, and my my brothers. Like the, just how it was like seven of us just sitting yeah. around doing this shit. And we're Lord. like, this is the next fucking thing, dude. Like we were so convinced because we got Evan Rachel Wood on the one track. Yeah. Got fucking. Like, dude, I, I, I watched. I was like, how is this not like a huge fucking thing? Well, I think Dante, you let guys, me, Dante, let I me think you guys you. had, I think you guys had something and just gave up too let soon. Go, no, dude, the Dante. pandemic hit. Like we had an album's worth of stuff everything sh- like literally we shot three videos yeah. on like march whatever it was 18th the day before the lockdown order in la hit so there's like max danny and me and the rest of the brothers just fucking running around shoot 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 and there's like okay we're gonna i'll see you in a couple months i guess yeah dude i gotta tell you dante it was it was intense first it was us being bored on a bus in birmingham alabama after a show at like one in the morning right like and we all there's seven of us all with mobile studios in the bus so we're all just making shit turned out to be so funny ended up doing it like as a straight troll and just like doing it so seriously as a joke then i got picked up on fucking jimmy fallon organically one morning i went and i'm getting text jimmy fallon during the pandemic was talking about like while you're at home and you're remote or whatever here's some songs that you should not listen to and the first one he did was Chevy Mustang. And it was fucking incredible. And I go, who sent this to him? How did this happen? And they're like, completely organic. They actually found it and hated it so much they put it up. <laughs> Dude, that's fucking amazing. We trolled Jimmy Fallon. That's I, that's like all time. That's all you can do. Uh, let's go into our first interview here. Let's go into our interview with Bronson Arroyo. Dave and Dante did. Uh, we'll come out to on the soft list and end with our Griffin interview. Uh, this is the interview with former Major League Baseball pitcher. Bronson Arroyo. Yeah! How you feeling? Yeah! You feel all right? All right. On the guest list today, we have 2004 World Series champion, 148-game winner, former all-star and current rock star, Bronson Arroyo. Bronson, how are we doing today? Welcome oh, to the show. Thanks, man. I'm doing fantastic. So... I think it's probably pretty well known that you... Um, Dave, we can't see you. Turn your video on. You had dabbled in music um, throughout your entire baseball career. But now that you're retired, man, you're a rock star. So uh, I wanted, as a baseball rap myself, that's what I cover on top of music. That's like my main thing. I want to talk about a little bit about 04. That was, you were a big reason that the Boston Red Sox broke the curse of the Bambino. So... Uh, like, what was your favorite part of that season, that magical ride? And um, were you like the guy in the in the locker room in the clubhouse keeping it loose with the acoustic or what? Yeah, I was. I, I still had an acoustic at that time. I was, uh, you know, I started playing probably in double A around uh, 99 when I was with the Pirates in double A in Altoona, Pennsylvania. But, um, you know, it was that the guitar actually was was a reason why I could kind of crack into the some circles that I wouldn't normally get into because some guys like David Wells or some of the older cats that were running the locker room might want to, they were interested in, in like figuring out how to play the guitar. So it gave me a little bit of a, a leverage in some of those uncomfortable situations. But on that 04 team, you know, I didn't have the guitar out a lot, man. Um, in 03, when I first got called up, I was in the back room. There wasn't enough room in that locker room. It was such a small place in Fenway before they redid it. And I was kind of tucked away back with Pedro Martinez and Manny Ramirez, almost where the, uh, the trainers 
lockers were. But by the time 04 came, they had expanded the locker room, man. And, and, and being in there was just really fun. I mean, it was, you know, I didn't really need the guitar to keep that locker room going because Kevin Millar and guys like Curtis Laskanik and Derek Lowe and Pedro Martinez, these guys were, they were half lunatics, man. And it was, uh, it was always loose inside that locker room. And I think, you know, probably my favorite part of being on that team was, um, I mean, obviously playing in the playoff run and, you know, getting over the hump with the Yankees and, and finally winning the World Series, you know, was the crescendo on the whole thing. But honestly, the locker room was just so, it was so much character in there. And you just knew you had such a good ball club too, to show up to the park every day and to see guys just absolutely, you know, doing bananas things inside the locker room and then go out and immediately just kind of dominate on the field. It, it was, it was you know, kind of a an environment I've never really been around. Usually guys in baseball take it a little bit more serious, but, you know, Millar was kind of the ringleader there, man, and he really kind of set the tone for it really being a circus inside that locker room. Was there a point of that season when you guys knew that you were kind of unstoppable? I'm a White Sox fan. I've heard Aaron Rowan tell stories. Um, he's like, if if we lost a game, we, we just threw it away because we knew we were going to beat the shit out of whoever we were playing the next day. And if we lost that game, it was the same thing. Like, we knew we were going to win every single game. The only reason we didn't win every game is usually because we were, like, hungover or something because we were so loose. But um, was there, like, like a moment or was it when you, I don't know, when A-Rod slept that ball out of your hand running down on first base or was there, you know what I'm getting at? Was there a certain at bat or pitch you made a strikeout or anything? I felt like, you know, it was, it was such a tough division because, you know, the American East was just so beastly at the time. I mean, if you just look at that Yankee lineup, man, you got guys like Jorge Posada and on our side, guys like Bill Miller. I mean, Billy Miller won the batting title in the seven hole the year before in 03, right? Like, he just edged out Jeter for that. So, I mean, these lineups from top to bottom were so difficult to get through. At times, it felt like you weren't sure if you were going to make it out of your own division. You know what I mean? Like, we, we felt confident we were going to win a wild card spot if we didn't beat the Yankees in the division. But you just knew that you were going to clash heads with them in order to get to that World Series. It had happened in 03. And you could just see the handwriting on the wall. I mean, having Kurt Schilling come in 04 made us feel like we had that extra piece of the puzzle that we were probably missing from the year before. But at the end of the day, you never really knew you were going to get over the hump. I think in Yankee Stadium, when Johnny Damon goes deep in game seven, that felt like it was the kind of the stamp on the whole thing. It felt like, OK, I think we're going to get over the hump here. There's probably no coming back from this one. And we're going to get a chance to play in a World Series. Fast forward to the next year. You guys are playing the White Sox in what was probably the coolest series I've ever watched as a fan because, I mean, the White Sox had gone on the playoffs in 2000. Prior to that, I think it was 94, the strike year. So I hadn't seen a lot of playoff baseball. Obviously, the Red Sox, there's an expectation that you'll at least – and now it's, it's World Series or bust no matter what year it is, even if, you know, they are in a rebuild. But um, I want I want to say thank you guys to, for 2005 because without that, I would – like be face down in a ditch somewhere. Uh, <laughs> the only time I've been happy as a sports fan was that year. So thank you for that. Um, kind of moving on from baseball a little bit. We'll, we'll get to the music in just a second. I got one last question. Where did the kind of patented leg kick come from when you were on the mound? Cause it that always was kind of enamored me as a baseball fan. Yeah. You know, that was something that I didn't realize was so unusual growing up right because back in the 80s when I was a kid you didn't watch yourself on film nobody was recording yourself and if, and if you were your parents were throwing it on a VCR tape and you weren't popping it in to, to dissect it so I really didn't realize that my leg kick was kind of unusual until I got to the rookie league with the Pirates when you started kind of dissecting your mechanics and that was born out of 1985-86 I'm living in Key West Florida and my parents are Mets fans so 
they're watching Dwight Gooden and, you know, he was a stud from 84 on. And so his high leg kick is just what my, my childhood mind kind of morphed out of it. But in the end, what wind up happening was I was using my foot in a lot of ways. Like people probably watch that and they might think it's a little uncomfortable, but for me, because I had loose hamstrings and I was using my foot as like a pendulum to pick my leg up. I wasn't using my hip flexor like most guys do to pick their leg up. And so for me, it was just this very relaxed thing. And, and when I watched myself back on film, even to this day, it looks like I could throw 10 miles an hour harder to myself. Even it's like, you're not really getting after it, but I was getting after it. It was just, you know, that's just the way that I moved on the mound. It, it felt fluid. It felt very effortless and easy, even though I was kind of getting after it underneath. Um, but the leg was something that kind of helped that tempo. And it just made me feel very comfortable out on the mound. On that note, uh, comfortability, was there, ever, did you ever have a coach um, at any point in baseball, rookie ball through, through your ascension through the minors or in the majors, uh, did they ever try to get rid of that and like, you know, make you a cookie cutter type stock right hand and pitcher? Yeah, it's, it's funny. So I was drafted by a guy named Scott Lovecamp, who's still with the Yankees to this day. And uh, we're still great buds. And, you know, people don't quite understand how a scout relationship is, but I try to say to people, imagine if your next door neighbor, you had been over their house, hanging out with their kid your whole life. And all suddenly he is now your like 10th grade geometry teacher, the father. It's, it's this odd thing. So the guy who drafted me, Scott Lovecamp, wind up being my pitching coach in double A after mm -hmm. I already been in the minor leagues for a while. And he was just so, you know, uptight about me being successful that he would pick me apart in a lot of ways just too too often and too much and to this day he'll kind of admit that but there was a time when he said hey let's take away the leg kick and see what happens and we tried it one one game and after about three innings I was so exhausted from my hip flexor not being used to picking up my leg that we kind of ditched it but you know the, these are the trials and tribulations of being in the minor leagues that people don't really realize that even on a coaching level, you know, you think these guys have it all buttoned up, but they, they actually don't. And sometimes they're just trying some things out. And then you look back 20 years later and say, man, what was I doing to that kid? You know, <laughs> Bronson, what's up, man? Uh, I'm Dante. I'm a, I'm a Boston guy. So I will thank you for winning, not losing like Dave just did. I don't understand why, you think <laughs> but I, uh, only time I've been happy, like I said. Okay. Well, I will I will say I was I was happy. The only reason I was happy in 05 is because a lot of people don't know this, but in my little hometown in Florida, little town called Brooksville, Florida, AJ Przinski was my catcher when I was 13 years old. I was gonna bring up AJ. I love AJ Przinski. He like Hawk Harrelson says it best. If if uh if AJ's on the other team, you hate his guts. If he's on your team, you hate him a little less. Uh, he's been on my baseball show uh, a handful of times. I'm trying to get him on right now, actually, because the White Sox are just disgustingly bad. But um. Talk to me about AJ. What was your, was he always the pest going back to when you were teenagers or did, is that something that kind of like grew as, as he, you know, he was at, I think a second rounder out of high school. Um, yeah. No, he was a, he was a third round pick and he was, no, he was always that guy. You know, we've known him since I've known him since we were 10, we played against each other 10, 11 and 12. And he was my catch when we were 13. And AJ, AJ was always a guy who, if he was beating you at basketball, he was talking pure trash. And if you were beating him, he was telling you that you were cheating. So he was, he was always the best, you know, I mean, it's just the way it was when, when you would see something happen on, on the field at a big league level and they would be all over the news, you know, my hometown boys would just be like, yeah, that's AJ, you know, it was just, it's just the way it was. It was the way he was made. It was built into his machine. And it was part of the reason why he was so competitive and so good. Yeah. He's got like, I, I want to say he's like fifth all time for hits as a catcher. He had an incredible career as well. Um, you kind of already answered this. So you said you picked up the guitar and was it double A? Double A, yeah. Double A. Uh, so you, I was going to ask, like, because 
I feel like a lot of athletes are like, oh man, I wish I would have gone the music route. And a lot of musicians are like, oh, I wish I would have gone that the sports route. Uh, so that wasn't a thing for you. What what spurred you picking up a guitar and eventually starting a rock band? I'm a, the rock band is Bronson Royal and the O4. I'm sure that's a testament to the World Series uh, championship, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, in those early years in the minor leagues, you have a lot of free time on your hands. And, and uh, I had been singing like in the shower, in the car just for a couple of years. And it was, you know, it was that Stone Temple Pilots, Pearl Jam, yeah. Alice in Chains. It was that whole Seattle movement that really kind of perked my ears up as a 15-year-old kid. And so what happened was I was just in the minor leagues and, and you know, there's one clubhouse guy in the minor league locker room, which is the guy who puts out the food and cleans your, your, your shoes and your spikes and your uniform all night. And he's usually there all day and all night because by the time you finish washing all the, the laundry, you turn it around, you got another game. So he had an acoustic guitar back there by his cot where he slept. And I just happened to pick it up one day and um, somebody gave me an acoustic guitar the next day. And uh, I just felt like it was something I wanted to try out. But once I started getting the music coming out of my own fingers and having the ability to to sing songs on my own with no recording. It, it almost felt like a magic trick in a lot of ways. And in the early days, it was just something to kind of fill time. But as, as time grew on, it felt like something almost, you know, close to baseball in a way that you couldn't live without it. It was, it was this buzz. It was this, this charge and this, this grind that you felt like was going to be part of your life for the rest of your life. How did you learn to play? Did you just, you know, were you, I know you're self-taught, but how did you teach yourself? Yeah, yeah you know, Marty Schwartz is around in 2004, you know? No. Yeah, it was just looking, back then, you know, there was there was enough of the internet to look up some songs on tablature. And I, I remember the very first song I tried to learn was What's This Life For by Creed. And, and um, you know, it's just four simple chords, but he plays the bar chords in the verse, uh, or the finger chords in the verse and the bar chords in, in, the, in the chorus. And it took me, you know, better part of a year to even start assembling a song to make it sound like it did on the record. But there was these light bulbs that were going off in my head at times. I can remember I was at my grandmother's house in the Keys when I figured out that a bar G was the same as a regular G, just sounded a bit differently. And then, you know, these light bulbs started going off in different times that you realized you could do things on the guitar that nobody was showing you. And it was just, you know, it was just a, a maturation process on my own and really just watching other people play a song, maybe like a bum that you ran into on a street corner in New York. And he play, you know, wish you were here by Pink Floyd. And you watch his fingers and go, oh, I think I can piecemeal that together. And it was just this 20 year process of doing that. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Like listening to your music now, it's pretty impressive that you really haven't been playing that long, like compared to, you know, some of our co-hosts that aren't here right now, who've literally been playing music their whole life. This isn't a knock on them, but you sound pretty fucking good, man, for only playing for, what did you say, 20 years? Yeah, I picked it up in 99. And, you know, it's it's been a, it's been a slow process of kind of peeling back an onion because in a lot of ways, it's very similar to performing on a field where, you know, you could pitch at double A or triple A and feel very comfortable in, in the way that the uniform sits on you and that you're playing with guys that are kind of around your age. And then you all of a sudden get called to the big leagues. And now you're playing in a stadium that is fully surrounded with fans behind you. You've never felt that before. You're on a mound now pitching to a catcher who really doesn't know you. And there's hitters at the plate that you've had posters on your wall your whole life. So, you know, peeling back the onion on the mound to just try to get comfortable enough in your own skin in front of 40,000 people to feel like you could perform at the level you did at double A AA or triple A, you know, was a little easier because I'd been doing that my whole life. But that was still a hump to get over. And musically, 
I'm still getting over that hump. I'm I'm grinding now down in my basement trying to find a way to feel comfortable by myself. You know, I can play with a band and I feel comfortable, but having an acoustic guitar, being totally naked with no one else to save you except yourself is something that I've been working on for the last couple of years. And it's just, you know, it's it's just this slow process of coming down and woodshedding it, man, and trying to give yourself goosebumps and, and figuring it out. That's the perfect segue because I actually wanted to ask without going back into the conversation, what was it like going from, no offense to Pittsburgh, going from Pittsburgh to pitching in Fenway and especially at that time with that was, know, like, was a blood feud between New York and Boston. Yeah, but just Joe, like what's his name? The uh Don Zimmer and all yeah, that. Yeah, but I mean it was also like the peak of the curse. I yep. mean the few years before that were just like gut-wrenching, heartbreaking. Um, you know, they traded Nomar. I mean, it was a lot of uncertainty and a lot of pressure. What like what was that just culture shock being yeah. A little, a little bit, you know, I, luckily I, you know, I had enough time at the big league level with the pirates. I had about a year and a half in over the eight years that I was in that system and I'd been bouncing up and down for three years. So I knew what the big leagues was about, but I didn't know what new England was about. And when you're only with one organization, you're, you know, from the time you're drafted until you get traded, like I did, you don't know that there's just another way to kind of like, you know, dice it up. And I mean, just from the workouts and the way that the philosophies of the organization were a lot different. And so when I got in the camp with the Red Sox, you know, I was I, I felt comfortable enough to perform, but I wasn't I wasn't comfortable in Fenway Park. And I remember the very first day I got called up from AAA in Pawtucket. You know, nobody knew me from a hole in the wall other than the fact that I had thrown a perfect game the month earlier. And they had heard whispers about that. But I was walking to the bullpen when I first got there, that very first game. And I was just looking around the crowd. And, you know, Fenway is such a monastery that it just captures your imagination without the fact that there was double the amount of people in the stadium at the time than there would have been in Pittsburgh. And Kevin Millar stretching on the line. And he looked at me and he said, hey, Cinderella, we ain't in Pittsburgh no more. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, he could see on my face that I was in a different place. And I remember that night I was warming up. It was my first outing. I, it's the only save I got in my whole career. I came in behind Pedro to pitch three innings against the Mariners to get my first save. And while I was warming up in the bullpen, and as you guys know, in Fenway, the fans are right there next to you. And yeah. somebody's screaming at me, Arroyo, if you don't save this game for Pedro, you're not making it out of the stadium alive. And that I, I literally was on the mound warming up. And I thought, oh, man, aren't we at home right now? Like, what is going on? And <laughs> You know, the intensity of that field never let you down, man. And, and it was what was so fun to play in because it felt like you were in a playoff game every night. Now, do you chase that little kind of that pressure? Like, or, so you're, you're retired now, obviously. Like, what's the, what's the largest you've played in front of uh, for, for the band? Oh, you know, sometimes in Cincinnati, I have played in front of 13,000 here, opening up for somebody like Darius Rucker. I've, you know, I've stood on the stage in front of 40,000 in Fenway playing with Pearl Jam just for a song. I wanted but, to ask you about that. But, but I think I think you know you can be just as nervous on the on the on the on the stage as you can be on the field for sure. So obviously, or I, I don't want to get ahead of myself here. Did you meet Eddie through Theo? Was that how that relationship? No, because I know no, you guys are pretty tight now. Yeah, Theo Theo already knew Eddie before I did because. You know, Eddie just has a real kind of um, admiration for the game of baseball in general because Theo was such a, um, you know, kind of like a almost like a genius in his own way as a young age, taking over an organization like that. And then obviously going to the Cubs, they had this kinship already before I had met Ed. But 
I felt like I, I knew Ed because he loved baseball so much and I loved his records so much, you know, but I met him in 2010. I went to a show. We had an off day in Cincinnati and it was the first time I'd seen Pearl Jam and I just hung out with him before and after the show for a while. And, you know, I just realized that he, you know, was so, so purposely intentful about his words and remembering your name and, and making sure that it was a magic night for you, you know, and then the, the, the relationship just kind of grew over time of going to show and show more and more shows after that. That's awesome. So it wasn't through the hot stove stuff. Cause I, I know, I remember you used to be on those hot stove bills at paradise in Boston. Yeah. We were, we were doing stuff for uh, Barstool at the same time. We were playing like same venues. And I remember those tickets were impossible to get. Yeah. Yeah. Those are those early years of hot stove. I, I just played hot stove. Not, you know, this past year we played it again and they were, kind of having a commemoration of the, the 2013 Red Sox team. So a bunch of the guys showed up, about 20 That's of them. Awesome. But I, Eddie had not known, he didn't know about Hot Stove back then, or he, at least he had not played it yet. He didn't play it. I, I first started playing it in 03. Um, I jumped up. Actually, it was, a, it was a strange night because I jumped up and played with Jack McDowell's guitar. And no I, played, I played black. And then in 2013, I'm at a Pearl Jam show. Eddie dedicates a song to me and Jack McDowell from the stage. And then we end up in the dressing room watching the last two outs of the Red Sox win the world series in 13. And then I tell the story about how, man, do you remember I played your guitar on Eddie's songs for this first hot stove thing. It was like this weird full circle moment, but um, you know, the hot stove has always been a great event, but I, that isn't why, how I met Ed. That's crazy. So you, you just put out your first full length album. You had a couple sing, and that it is your first full length album, right? Yeah, I put out a cover. I put out an album called "Covering the Bases." Right, in I know that. Yeah, but of original material, this is my first one. Yeah. So I just I've listened to it a handful of times now. It's the album's called "Some Might Say." It is quintessential, just like you said, Seattle grunge, and there aren't a lot of bands, um, unless you're like Legacy X at this point, like Pearl Jam, um, that play that kind of music, and it's it's a breath of fresh air that, um that you're kind of bringing it back a little bit. And I'll be completely honest when, when we got the email saying you were available to uh, promote it, I'm like, all right, it's an athlete playing music. It's not a musician. That sure. is not the case at all. It is full on rock star. It's, it's outstanding. Um, I shot it over to our, we, I, I'm sure you're familiar with AWOL nation and uh, um, those guys in the alt rock scene. I shot it over to them. They're like, Holy shit, this is like music, you know? So um, how long did it take you to, uh to like start to finish like you have the concept i want to put out my own album uh through its release a couple months back well it started it started when i retired so 2018 i kind of got the bug and i said you know i've never really written songs except for kids songs you know i'd go to an elementary school or a hospital and i'd whip out a little song you know for the kids yeah. or whatever but never really tried uh, my hand too much at writing a serious serious songs and so i started here in cincinnati i went out to la i grabbed some riffs from the guys old iphones and we had always said for 20 years we were going to um, make an album. These are a bunch of guys that I started playing at the Hot Stove Cool Music with back in the early 2000s. And so I started writing songs. It took me about a year and a half to write 24 songs. You know, I was just figuring out that process. And once I figured out kind of a, a process where I could write with one other writer in about four hours, I'd have kind of these junky demos. So I just I assembled all these demos, took them out to L.A. The guy said, man, you got you really been working hard. OK, let's try to make a record. And so we went out and we really only put about, I'd say, we were only in the studio for maybe four weeks banging that thing out. Um, but COVID happened right in the middle of it. So 
there was like a year of dead time before I got back out to finish the record, but it wasn't a lot of time in the studio. We knew what we wanted to do. I didn't know exactly what it was going to sound like, but I was going to let the guys, you know, kind of bring their own flavor to it with the guitars and stuff. And uh, I was just happy to to have these stories that were mine that, that came out of my own, my own brain and, and have them come to life on a record. And it was, I wasn't even sure I was going to put it out. That wasn't really the goal. The goal was just to make it and see what we thought about it. But after listening back to it, it was like, man, this is really good. It's like, um, we, we're going to have to do something with it. So we figured we just put it out. It's outstanding. It's like I said, it's, it's a breath of fresh air, bringing back that music that you don't really see created often anymore. It's, I think like, I, I don't, I don't think there's much good music out there today, unless you really, really dig for it, especially what's pushed by studios and uh, what's deemed successfully or successful commercially. So um, as we wrap up here, I just have a couple of rapid fire questions for you, uh, both on the music um, and, and baseball as a whole. Uh, just first thing that comes to your mind, uh, thoughts on the pitch clock. Uh, I love it. Love it. Well, how would you have done with that? I, that I, was, good? I was a quick guy by nature, man. I really yeah, you the pace up unless I was getting my butt kicked. I would have enjoyed it. Uh, the toughest out for a major leaguer you've ever faced. It could be anybody. Some scrappy utility guy, Barry Bonds himself. It doesn't matter. Sin Shu Chu was the, the guy that you wouldn't that wouldn't come off the top of the head, but just destroyed me. But on a, as a whole, man, Albert Pujols was an absolute monster to deal with. Shu could rake for a while. Nobody, yeah. like, he could rake. Yeah, he could hit, man. It was it was such a joke that when he got traded over to the Reds in 2013, I think he played with us, man. He walked in the locker room. He walked straight over to me the first day of spring. He just gives me a hug, lays his head on my shoulder. and said, I'm sorry, bro. I said that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, why do the White Sox completely stink? Oh, man, I haven't seen a lot of White Sox games, but honestly, in, in years, if, if I, you know, if I'm just guessing from outside, it's always usually starting pitching, man. I mean, if you if you're not usually get the job done a lot like the Orioles have it for a lot of years. It's usually that they just don't have enough depth in that starting rotation. They could use you right now. Uh, they have no depth in the starting rotation. Um, we already talked about AJ favorite band of all time. It's Pearl jam for sure. Pearl jam. And uh, who, who are you listening to right now? Anybody yeah. new? Yeah. I'll tell you what, man, I've been grinding for the last four days, man, since that Ed Sheeran record came out, man, the quiet one is called subtract. It's, it's got a lot of gut wrenching kind of ballads on it, man, but he's playing, He's writing. I find it very fascinating. I love the Lumineers as well. And the Lumineers do the same thing. They they write a ton of great melodies over the same chord progressions. And Ed did this on this record. And I think some of the chords came from Aaron Desner from, from the National. But but just to be able to, to break out of the mold and hear the same, you know, FCG over and over again and find different ways to make it melodic and, and beautiful and a, and a separate song, very difficult for me to do. And I've really enjoyed that lately. Uh, person you'd like to get a beer with dead or alive could be anybody president anybody Jesus. dead or alive I, man I, i'd probably take a beer with gandhi <laughs> it'd be a good one yeah no, no, I, I don't know if he's a beer drinker but maybe he'd have a little wine <laughs> and uh how long did it take you to finally nail the bard the bard f chord it's the biggest asshole on earth i just i hate that thing more than anything yeah, I don't remember how long it took me, but it was probably the better part of a full a full year, you know. And I, you know, what I find though by trying to teach some ball players, as I, as you know, it was getting later in my career. The right hand is what everybody has trouble with, though. Like we all we all know how hard it is to make chord shapes, but once you get that, 
there's still a significant amount of the population who don't understand how rhythm works with the right hand. And they're always asking how many times I'll go up and down. And I, I used to say, I, I don't really know. It's like, you just got to feel the song, man. Like it's like playing drums. You got to be able to kind of keep that time. And some of the guys, man, it's really hard. David Ross and, uh, and uh, Chris DeNorthy used to come by a place in Arizona and I'd try to get them going and they could only literally play a song for about 45 seconds and their right arm would just be wore out because they they were having a hard time kind of loosely strumming the guitar so it's uh you know everybody's kind of a little different How many, have you given is any can anybody uh credit you for learning the guitar um, actually learning not just teaching a few uh chord shapes I don't I don't think so most of the guys that I've that you know you, you try to teach a little bit they usually put it down it's it takes that it takes a little bit of kind of an extra oomph to to really dig into the guitar long enough to to really get it and pop back out the other side and say, oh, man, look, look what I learned. You know, this is almost like it's got to it's got to hit you the right way. And a lot of guys for them, it, it it's OK. And then they just put it down and they don't really kind of get over the hump. And as we wrap up, uh, where can we find your music? Uh, are you guys going on tour? Are you in the middle of a tour? Um, talk you know, to we, me about we played we played some shows earlier in the year um, at Innings Festival, and we played the Hot Stove Cool Music. We played a whole set in front of those guys from the 2013 team the other night. Um, we've got Watson, a how awesome was that Innings Festival? Oh man, it's it's great. It's so it's you know how cool it is to stand on the stage and be playing these songs of my own, and I look out and see Tommy Her and Edwin Encarnacion teaching, hitting and and uh, on in the batting cages on the backside. Man, it's like. Just absolutely, what a cool environment to be in to see some of my childhood heroes and also play music. Such a genius idea, like whoever came up with it. Is that something you're going to be a part of, like yearly? Yeah, I think so. It's something that's so kind of, it's right up my alley. You know, Jake Peavy loves to show up to it. Bernie Williams likes to go. I mean, it's nothing like, you know, we I played my set, man. And as soon as we finish, I look over the breeders start their set. And it's like, where in the world is Bronson Arroyo going to see Tommy Herr, Edwin Encarnacion, and the breeders playing right after my set? You know, it's just amazing. P PV and, uh, uh, wait, who, who else did you name PV and, Bernie oh, and Bernie? They're both big time guitarists too, right? Bernie is Bernie is a is a really, really classically trained jazz guy who's been nominated for Grammys. And um, he's serious about his craft. And Jake is uh, kind of like me, a guy who kind of hacked his way through it. But but the music yeah. is so is so under his skin that you can't let it go, you know, and he just enjoys getting up on stage and performing. Well, thank you. Uh, one last time before we get out of here. The album is called Some Might Say it was released. Uh, it was released in February, correct? Yeah, you can catch it. On all, you can find it anywhere on where you find your music, whether it's iTunes or Spotify, Apple Music, where, wherever it is. And if you want to. I think there's still some signed copies at um, talkshop.live. That, that's where you can find a, an actual CD, or you can go to Amazon. They're on Amazon as well. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, if you're looking for some non-Pearl Jam, Pearl Jam-influenced jams, uh, I know that was a tongue twister. Check it out. That's all over the internet. Bronson, thanks for hopping on, and we'll uh, catch you soon, brother. Keep rocking right, out. Appreciate thanks, it. Bronson. So that was Bronson Arroyo. Go check out all of his music. Shout out to White Sox Dave for fucking being White Sox Dave. Uh, let's go into on the list, off the list real quick. Uh, I'll start out. On my list is the Guardians of the Galaxy soundtrack. God damn it. That's all I've been able to listen to. There's something special about these old songs that are used in the right way in movies. And do, if anybody's seen the new Guardians movie, please don't spoil it for me yet. I haven't had the opportunity to see it. But like, come and get your love. Boys are back in town. Like, Brandy by Looking Glass, such a banger. 
James Gunn has, does an unbelievable job. There's of, a like, couple of things that I wanted to. Um, it was, uh, do you realize by the Flaming Lips, one oh. of my favorite fucking songs of all time. Like great choice. And then, yo, the fucking Mowgli's good. Yeah, for you guys, that's fucking awesome, man. That's huge. The what keyboard player. Think, good. What do you think the budget is to clear? These soundtracks. James Gunn's budget for sync when it comes to Guardians of the Galaxy has to be in the millions. It's got to has to be in the millions. I I when I saw the first one, it was all I had to go back and rewatch it because I was I was paying attention more to the music than the storyline. And I missed I, I just could not believe I was like, oh my God, another fucking incredible song. And I kept thinking, like, I can't remember a movie that has had music like this. And thought back until Forrest Gump was the last movie I remembered that just had. Remember the Titans. Smash, 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 smash. All right. Remember the Titans is a good one, too. But I I was trying to think, like, how much did they set aside? I mean, it's uh, literally literally millions. I'm reading an article article right now that says some of the songs were free. Some of the songs are $75 and some of the songs are a million dollars a piece. It just no way. Yeah. Oh, dude, that's wow. like when J- James Gunn for the Suicide Squad ends the movie with uh, the song So Busted by Culture Abuse. Yeah. I'd never heard that song with my fucking phone out and Shazam the shit out of that. The guy has a great ear. And I saw a great video songs. of a kid. Well, who's actually music punk- supervising that? That's James Gunn. James yeah, Gunn he, is he doing all that. Do he that. does all that. I saw a really funny video of uh, a kid at a Taylor Swift concert shaz- Shazamming the concert. <laughs> 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 I spent $85,000 to be here, but I didn't know any of the songs, dude. But, dude, here's my thing. Like, all those songs are recognizable and familiar. Like, yeah, props to James Gunn, but, I mean, he didn't do that on a shoestring budget. He wasn't, like, digging up these songs you never heard before, and you were like, oh, my God, what is this song? Oh, shit, it's from fucking 30 years ago. Those were all, like, banner yeah. like you said so like, yeah I mean, if i said if i said make a barstool video you've got an unlimited budget use whatever songs you want we could all fucking do yeah really right well, great you, say that, you say that but there's also an aspect of like you know when you're watching a movie replace this one song with a different song the movie's entirely fucking different so that yeah, yeah. song choice is night like, and day it's so fucking important man like in you- this in the same movie he had mr blue sky by elo gotta be a five hundred thousand dollar sink Father and Son by Cat Stevens. Yeah. Million Dollar Sink. The Chain by Fleetwood Mac. Uh, Bring It On Home by Sam Cooke. Like, what the Elvin fuck? Bishop. Like, dude, oh, dude yes. here's an interesting Elf- question. Here's an interesting question. Like, you said the Fleetwood Mac thing. Like, a lot of these old artists have sold their entire catalog. Like, yeah. both sides, as in master and publishing side. I wonder if there's, like, backroom deals where I don't know who that – what studio that's on. Disney. But those studios – okay, yeah, so they own Universal, right, or vice versa. So I wonder if you get package deals with that where they're like, well, you can use all this shit now because we just Probably paid right. $200 e- million for it. Either way, I'm just right happy he did it because it just reminds me – and this is what I said. I was in a positive mood. Just these classic records, and you're like, these were – Built by the hands of God. Like something like Ain't No Mountain High Enough by Marvin Gaye. Are you fucking kidding me? It's a perfect song. It's the sound of America. It's Didn't just Ed Sheeran write that one. He did. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. Hey, I think. <laughs> hey, we talked on the Bronson uh, interview. I 
asked him, I was said, you know, what do you, obviously you're heavily 90s alt rock influence. What are you listening to now? He said the new Ed Sheeran subtraction album, which I don't know if you guys have heard, but I love it. And I wasn't expecting to love it because I hate it. Didn't hate, but I really didn't like his last album, which was to me, total sellout pop. Uh, just, I, I thought it was shit. Um, this album is basically all acoustic. He, That's where he's the best. He did it with uh, the national guy. I can't think of his name. Aaron Dresner. Yes, Dresner. Oh. And I listened to an interview that the two of them did on Apple One before they did this private show. It was like right after his trial ended. He did a private show in New York. And he, he said, he was like, I'm getting back to you know, what I love doing. And that's playing simple. He said like three chord based songs, which I don't know if I misheard that or if that's actually a thing. Makes sense. Very uh, green day fucking three chord progressions. Yeah. And he, in um, the interviewer asked him, he's like, yeah, you're playing with uh, loop pedals tonight. And he's like, you know, that's like, kind of risky for a live show. And Sharon was like, I actually like it because if I mess up, it makes the song unique and somebody heard something different than, you know, they were expecting or whatever, but it gave a great interview and talked about how getting back to writing songs from his heart. And I got to tell you, I got to tell you, there's one, two, there's two things here. This is a good and a bad thing. One, you know what I don't need in my life? Any more singer songwriter fucking acoustic songs. But you know what I do respect the fuck out of, dude? I've seen that live looping that he does. Yeah, he's gnarly. Lee by himself. Yep. 80,000 people. Yo, hats off to you, big dog. That's fucking incredible. I like that guy a lot, and I'm glad he's doing the more Ed Sheeran esque shit. By the way, shouts out to the fucking national. It's nice yeah. to see those guys get some pub, dude. Great band. Um, I feel I, like they've been working a lot lately. Yeah, they did the Taylor Swift albums. Yeah, that's how like, they they got back into the spotlight, baby. Um, I do have to leave, gentlemen. I'll let you guys finish this on your own. That'll uh, never happen. I wanted to give my off the list is Queens of the Stone Age for not giving me the full fucking record yet because that first single was so fucking good, dude. I'm dead serious. Go listen to it. Oh, my yeah. buddy's doing front of house for Queens on their next tour, and they're coming to L.A., and your boy's going to be there standing front of house. It's going to be fucking sick. If you don't Bye. suck Josh Hame on stage, you're not my boy. <laughs> He's too tall. I couldn't even stand it. Really sick, you <laughs> you got to climb up his legs like Groot. <laughs> uh, yeah, but for real, though, I love you fucking guys. I'll talk to you, okay. talk to you later today. Bye. See you, Con. Bye, bro. So what do we do now, guys? Has this ever happened? No. Uh, I want to I want to say one thing that I got cut off on and we were talking about how like just generic vocals are on EDM songs. I feel like that is why the songs, you know, them, all the mainstream songs by like Zed were as big as they were. Not only were they just like earworm instrumentals, but he actually had lyrics that not only did people sing along to and remember the words to, but they actually made sense. Um, I also know, think like, it's not even just the vocal. I mean, I agree with what you're saying on that. Like, you must know that track "Children" by Robert Miles, like from 
90, whatever, like yes, no lyrics on that. Like if you want to talk about emotional content and electronic dance music, like that's for me is the pinnacle of it. Cause it's just simple piano stuff, but the harmony conveys like an actual feeling plus you can dance to it. So like that's those, and those are monsters. If you can get one, Holy fuck! Because you just like beat, brought everything together. Songs were fucking monster. Yeah, he he got yeah he had that too. But doesn't that what you said earlier? I forget who you 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 were said you were looking up the artists when they said that they're gonna basically yeah. pioneer this emo yeah. EDM music. I feel like that's an insult to these people who have been like Clarity, one of the biggest fucking. But dance- here's the thing. Okay, two things. One, I wonder if we can get Coma on to talk about how Zed ripped him off for clarity Two, i did not know i do not know this story you don't know this story okay so no. i don't know the full story all i know is that something like zed did not give coma the credit for writing clarity and it at 10 years passed and coma like two years ago started like tweeting and putting out like long things about how zed fucked him over blah 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 and then zed came oh wow like, i don't know what he's talking about look it up you'll you'll be super interested about it but i think the article i read was more of a of a mash of emo music oh no dude mgk is gonna make a fucking right EDM imagine record. mgk Fuck. and edm right emotional dance music i think that that's what they're talking about not like heartfelt lyrics like i'm sad and want to slit my wrist here's a four on the floor beat with a giant clap you just yeah i i actually wouldn't be surprised to see that become a real popular news genre like it feels like that emo or at least the look of emo is making its way through every genre at the moment but what are they going to do? Put palm muted distortion guitars and yeah, exactly. In fact, Kenny, why don't we fucking make this emo dance shit? As no. long as my name is not associated with it in any way. I got we got a new side project, baby. Dante <laughs> yeah. spin it in the clubs and test it. Dude, I definitely will. Uh, that like I sad. I don't robot. Even know what to think about that. I just because I think like when you go back and you look at a song like clarity like the vocals are so ridiculously over dramatic mm-hmm. and it's just a ridiculous song but it like the emotion i think is what made it such a big song like every girl still when you play that song in the club belts out every word and like it still goes off and I feel like there's a handful of EDM songs that are just classics like that. And they all have that same characteristic. I got to get Coma yeah. to come back on when you're available. Oh, I would love to. I would love to fucking pick his brain. We'll make that happen. We'll make that happen. Um, the last thing before we get out of here, I don't have much of an on or off, but I have a, something I've been listening to. I know neither of you guys really listen to hardcore music that much or at all, but I found a new band called Drain from santa cruz california that is blowing my fucking brains to smithereens this guy's like slightly overweight wearing khaki shorts white tube socks and it's the heaviest music one guitar player one bass player one drummer one singer like it's fucking great i just want everybody to go check out a band called drain they're at drain 831 on insta they're fucking incredible Kenny, I actually need to pick your brain about this because I went through like a few months ago, like down a bit of a punk rabbit hole, just trying to find stuff I liked. And I found a couple of things. The thing with punk bands I'm always worried about is like starting to like some band that's actually just like a bunch of white nationalists or something, particularly in that Southern California (laughs) scene. Like like, there's like great music and I start listening closer to the lyrics. I'm like, what the, what the fuck did he just say? Yeah. Any, most anything that comes from Southern California is questionable. Yeah. But there's some cool shit. um, But I want to get some recommendations 
from you, but have you ever listened to Hank Williams the Third? His punk, I guess they call it like uh, punk grass. It's what? like bluegrass punk music. So Hank Williams the Third, the grandson yeah. of Hank Williams the original, uh, has a band called Hank Three, and it's like <laughs> punk music, but with kind of a bluegrassy influence. It's fucking hard. And it's fucking cool because like, oh, you'll never like, send it to me, but that's also a great name. Hank three. That's a yeah. great name for a fucking band. I'm going to send it right now. What was the last band name that I wrote down the other day? I had a really. <laughs> oh, Cody Bryant and Hunter's laptop and visually aggravating. I think was another great one. <laughs> you're so visually aggravating to me. Um, all right, Johnny. Oh, I see you're putting it in the chat. Okay. Let's get the, uh, the F out of here. Oh, this is it? No, you can you can end the episode. I'm gonna. I was, I was just gonna play that to you. Okay, everybody, we'll get back to you. We've got really big things coming that I can't talk about. That's like Colin. <laughs> I'm super excited. Yeah, so super excited. We're taking over the world. Nobody can stop us. <laughs> okay, love you guys. Bye. We're rolling, right? All right, this is Dante. We are here live, barstool backstage. I'm with the one and only Griffin, Dan. So What's good up, man? to see you, man. It's good. To, it's good to see you too. It's been a it's, while, right? I don't know. I feel like I haven't seen you in like a year or two, maybe. I, it's like kind of like something happened last year where no <laughs> one did anything, right? I know, right? So last time I saw you, Lollapalooza, Chicago, mm-hmm. you put on one of the best shows. Thanks, I have, man. No, no I'm, not, I'm not just saying that because you're here. Like I, I saw you backstage. We shot the shit. You went on like all nonchalant and you put on a fucking performance. Like, thanks, man. I you're playing that. guitar, mm-hmm. piano, DJ. You were doing like full, like, I, I was blown the fuck away. And a lot of multitasking. Yeah. Like, so, like, tell me a little bit about, like, so I know a little bit about your background. I don't think a lot of people out there truly do. So, yeah. Um, I mean, the, yeah, like the live show is definitely a big part of the project and something I pride myself in is being, you know, an electronic dance music act, but someone that I also like performs and plays the instruments live. I have like a band with me and everything, which is like a big part of the show. Um, and yeah, it's like always great to play on the big festivals like Lollapalooza and do do the live show like that. Um, and yeah, it's been, it's been great. And tonight's obviously a, a club night, no, no instruments or anything tonight, but it's still going to be a lot of fun. So I'm excited when you do do these festival shows though. So you are, I mean, you're obviously an accomplished pianist, right? Mm, yeah. Yeah. I, what, like what other instruments do you play? Um, I mean, I'm mostly just keys and guitar. Uh, like I grew up playing the piano and then uh, like a few years later I picked up the guitar when I was in like middle school and just kind of like jammed around with bands and like friends and in, in the basement kind of stuff, making music like that. And that's, and then it segued into electronic music. Um, now kind so of like fuse both the worlds. So when you were a kid playing in bands, what kind of stuff would you play? Uh, well, so my cousin was actually, uh, is still the singer in a rock band called thrice. Um, not sure if you're familiar, but, um, they were really big when I was growing up and they still are big, but, um, was really inspired by him and kind of that like punk hardcore scene growing up as a kid. And like sublime was my favorite band when I was younger. Um, and still is one of my favorite bands. So I've always had that sort of like rock background i love classic rock so i have all that kind of like background and then 
when I got to college, I started getting really into like Swedish House Mafia and Avicii and Skrillex and all these guys where I was like, wow, who like, what is this music? Like, I I'd never heard anything like when Skrillex put out Scary Monsters and like it was so inspiring to me at the time. And I was like, maybe I can try and just like make electronic music on my own. And when I felt like it didn't completely suck, I like decided to just put it on SoundCloud and, and kind of go from there. And that's kind of how this project really got going. That's amazing. So one thing a lot of people out there might not know is Dan was part of the early, early blackout years and the Sammy Adams years. Yep, used yep, to, yep. Used to play on tour shows with Sammy and I and blackout shows with Barstool. Yep. And I mean, obviously the last three years, I mean, gravity, you drop gravity and I think everything changed after that, which yeah i think so i mean it, it was i always like doing back doing those shows and i always like i wasn't really releasing like original music at that time and you know i was in that uh, different uh musical state at that point but now it's really a focus of mine to make original music and have an album which was gravity was my first actual put together album and now i'm like kind of going that direction as an artist and right now i'm like you know neck deep into album number two right now and i'm really excited uh to show that to the to the rest of the the world uh later this year so everybody's been like really anticipating it do you have any idea when we can expect it uh this calendar year for sure um it's actually sooner than i thought because i mean obviously last year was a bummer year but i was home a lot in the studio seven days a week so i got to make a lot of music and i really gotten like an identity for what i want this next project to be and uh it's gonna start rolling out really soon and definitely by the end of the calendar year it's gonna be out so. everybody's pumped man i mean the millennium stuff the dais i mean you have just put out some of the best quality records not just in edm but in like music period in the last couple of years i'm so interested to hear how your process works with like songwriting like Mm -hmm. can you like don't give away all the like secrets or anything but when you sit down and you try to formulate a song are you writing the music first are you coming up with like the lyrics how how's this working it all really depends to be honest like er earlier on i think i was just came up just remixing a lot of music so i was actually like producing around finished vocals and songs and when I started making original music, like that's kind of how the process started where I would get like a demo and the top line was already written and then I would kind of produce around it. But now that I'm just more experienced in it and I want to be more involved in the songwriting aspect of it. Um, yeah, a lot of times I'm like sitting in the room, like pen to paper or like more like voice note or like a uh, iPhone and stuff. But like I'm writing about lyrical content and honestly every song is different like sometimes i'll come up with a musical idea already and then it's about like writing something to that or vice versa it's like i want to write about something that i'll draw a lot of like the writing inspiration from like previous experiences in my life and then if i feel like there's something there um and it's something like a story that i want to tell then i'll kind of come up with the lyrical ideas first and then build the song around it so every time it's different honestly i love that so. a great answer over the last year, what was the biggest thing you missed? Um, I think really it was the live shows and the connection with the fans. Like, I, I mean, obviously like social media helps connecting people and whatnot, but it's just like 
really just not the same. It's not the same experience as being there with the crowds, meeting the fans before the show, after the show. Um, traveling was another thing I just missed so much. I get so inspired from traveling around the world and being in different cultures. So those are the two things that I feel like I miss so much. And it's just, I'm so happy that we're getting back at least in the U S right now and hopefully the rest of the world uh, pretty soon, but definitely looking forward to making more connections with the fans and more traveling. Amen. So everyone knows like the Tomorrowlands, the EDCs, the, all these mega festivals are everybody's favorite thing. What would you say is one of your like low key favorite gigs or spots or stages to play? Um, I think a really underrated festivals hangout. Um, I think it's like one of the best vibes, at least from a crowd fan perspective, but also even like the artists hang, it's like right on the beach in like Gulf Shores, Alabama. It's really laid back. So every artist is like really approachable. And it's just, it just has like this amazing vibe of being people there because they're just really there to have an awesome time and are just living in the music. And I think that's a really underrated festival. And Outside Lands is probably another one because that's nice. my hometown um, festival. So those are probably like two really, really big ones. I've heard really good things about that. It's it's a great vibe. Yeah. Nice. All right. I love it. Dan, cannot thank you enough. Good to see you again, man. I'm so excited to see you crush it tonight. The crowd is like on 11 right now, <laughs> sold out completely. We just have one favor to ask. You got to sign our wall. Yep. We've Let's got, do it. Let's we've do got it. Cascade, Cedric, and Lost Kings. You can... Put up your SIG anywhere you want. Can someone grab my I love it. Let's do it. Let's go. Let's go. Come on.